1: Hello everyone and welcome to episode four of this special homeschooling series of Histories of the Unexpected. While we were all in lockdown and everyone is being schooled from home, what I thought I'd do today is something slightly different. I mean, the first episode, what I did was I looked at an introduction to how we start homeschooling and how history can be made accessible and fun for children... Uh, Then in number two, we looked at digital things, digital offerings that were available for everyone. In number three, we looked at projects. And most of that, while it was geared for everyone, a lot of it was geared to primary school children, their parents at home, to support the teachers, um, younger people at secondary school. Uh, But what I wanted to do today was to think about those kids who are at A-level stage who are in the sixth form. Um, They have had their exams cancelled and in some ways they must feel in limbo. Uh, Teachers are doing their utmost best to provide online teaching and hats off to all our teachers who are doing such a wonderful job. Uh, Myself and my colleagues at University of Plymouth are continuing to teach our wonderful students online. Um, But for the A-level students who've had their exams cancelled. What I wanted to do was to just do something specially for you and I think it's a it is a time when you're unsure about what's going to happen next. Uh, The government and schools are working out how they are going to uh, make up for your cancelled examinations this summer. My sense is I think everything is going to be absolutely fine There will be an easy solution. It will be based on coursework that you've done so far with a little bit of assessment, trust in your teachers. Uh, They have your best interests at heart. If you are applying for university, also trust in the universities. Everyone has your best interests at heart at this time of global crisis. With that dispensed with, what I wanted to do was to give you some things to think about uh, because you're in this sort of hinterland between A-level and university. And one of the things that I wanted you to think about was the nature of history, and to think about preparing for your future. And I think this is something that you can do over the next months alongside the kinds of things that you'll be doing in the classroom, the online classroom with your teachers. And the way that I thought we could get to this was by talking about the history of histories of the unexpected. Now, this was a podcast that Sam Willis, uh, Sam, hello across town, that Sam Willis and I devised uh, about three years ago. And Sam sent me a text and he said, James, I'm I'm thinking of starting a new podcast. I said, oh, that's terrific. Wonderful. Um, I, He said, and I'd really like you to be a guest on it. So we met up. We had a cup of coffee in a lovely cafe called The Plant on the Cathedral Green in Exeter and Sam told me about a time when he was giving a tour around HMS Victory and when he was halfway round, somebody said to him, Sam what on earth are those windows on the back of this warship? And he actually didn't know the answer. But what he did, Sam being Sam, uh, is very inquisitive, uh, resourceful individual, as you all well know, went off and did a little bit of squirrelling around in the archives and found out that in fact, what it was all about was about ways of looking. Um, It was all about the enlightenment and the view and I said, and he said, so, so, what we can do, James, is that we can think about the history of the window from this perspective, and I said to him, Sam, windows aren't about simply about that. they're about throwing people out of windows or they're about smashing windows and so it can take you to sixteen eighteen and the start of the thirty Years' War, or it can take you to um, the 1572 St Bartholomew's Day Massacre, where the Huguenot Protestants were thrown out of windows as a way of of uh, murdering them. Or it can take you to uh, the 16th century in England and the smashing of stained glass windows by reformers who saw stained glass as something that was deeply superstitious. So you, the idea is, was born from this. So the idea was that you take a, a topic... And you can unpack it and go off in all sorts of ways. And from there, we recorded over 120 different episodes. I think we're now on almost 130. Um, We set this up with the support of Dan Snow uh, and the History Hit Network. uh, And then we went off on our own. We published a trade press book called Histories of the Unexpected. Everything has a history. And this was great fun. It's 30 chapters based on the idea of the podcast and the idea behind the whole book was that it went in one continual circle. So we started with the history of the hand and the hand then went into the history of the glove and then the glove went into something else and we ended up with the signature at the end and then the signature fed back to the history of the hand and so you went on this this terrific journey. Um, We then also wrote a series of mini books on the Tudors the Vikings, the Romans, and World War II. And what we did there was something slightly different. So whereas the initial concept is basically showing that everything has a history and that these histories link together in every way, in in all sorts of ways. So what you would do, you would take something like the, the smile or cats and you would link it to, say, the French Revolution or or whatever. What we did instead with the subject-specific books, the period books, was we actually took an, I, we took the Tudors, for example, and got into it through different topics. So instead of, say, cats being all about the French Revolution, um, here we started with the idea of the Tudors and then we got into the Tudors through things like eyes and windows and chairs uh, and fruit-eating accidents. And so it became a sort of portal into that. From there... If we follow our little journey, from there we work with the terrific Daniel Jameson, uh, who's a dear, dear friend. Um, he's a brilliant playwright. Um, he's written for all sorts of things, including uh, Theatre Alibi in Exeter and Radio 4. He's just an all round brilliant, brilliant guy. Um, and we worked with him in devising two live stage shows. One, Histories of the Unexpected Live, that we've been touring around all over the place, and the second one is a show on the Tudors. Now, we were supposed at this time to be touring these around the country, taking them to schools. Um, However, we are all in lockdown, and that will be delayed for another time. Now, getting to the point now, that is the history of histories of the unexpected. That's how it came about. So it's a podcast, it's a book, it's a book series, it's two live stage shows, it's um, it's it's workshops for schools. But what I wanted to talk to you about, and particularly those of you in sixth form, but also to everyone, is, is how do we do it? So what are the kind of underpinning historical tools and methodologies? Because frankly, for me, Histories of the Unexpected is great fun, you know, and it may fe- seem like Sam and I have a lot of fun, and we do, we absolutely do. We love sort of riffing off each other. Uh, I think that's what's, that's one of the things I enjoy most about this. But for me, as a professor of history, uh, very long in the tooth now, um, there are a number of tricks of the trade that underpin Exactly what we do, and I think some of these you can see the sort of bare bones of, and we talk about these from time to time in our podcast. So, what I wanted to do was just sort of spend a half an hour or so uh, just talking you through some of these. Um, and I, if I sort of listed them, we would have firstly, we'd have taxonomies. Um, So you see at the start of each of the episodes we often go, oh, how do we draw uh, a sort of taxonomy of the topic of cats? So it's all the different ways of thinking about cats. So I'll talk to you about that. And secondly, it's comparative and global history. So one of the things is that when we look at a particular subject, we don't look at it in a very narrow way. We look at it across time and so we look at it chronologically and we look at it globally so we look at it how it operates across time and in all sorts of different regions. Now thirdly one of the things that you'll notice is that we don't just deal with documents Uh, so we don't just look at uh, written sources but we also look at objects and One of the techniques that we use is something that anthropologists or archaeologists would use, and it is object biography, so the archaeology of things. So how do you look at and study things? I'm writing a book on gloves at the moment. I've also written a book called The Material Letter, which is about the sort of physical features of letters. So letters not simply as documents, but letters as really interesting, fascinating uh, physical objects in themselves. So I'll talk to you a little bit about that. And then one of the things that historians are really interested in, and this is number four, is models of historical change. So how do things change over time? And whether this be how do uh, political systems or structures change over time, how do religious beliefs and religious organisation change over time, economy, society, all of those kinds of things, people are, historians are interested in how that change comes about. And there are two very interesting and slightly different uh, techniques that I'm going to talk to you about very briefly that'll get you thinking about how we look at change in history over time. And the first is G.R. Elton's uh, model of causation. So he he draws a uh, distinction between direct and indirect causes. I'll talk to you a little bit about that. And then from a brilliant, brilliant French historian, uh, Fernand Braudel, um, in his magisterial uh, Mediterranean world in the era of uh, Philip II. Um, a brilliant, brilliant book. He introduces there the concept of layers of time. So it's how you look at all sorts of different facets of the past and, and integrate them. And this was part of a great uh, movement in French history during the... Uh, 20th century called the Annals School, uh, one of my favourite historical schools and some of the best, best, uh, most creative sociocultural history came out of France in that period and then began to sort of feed into uh, British history and and also history in the United States as a sort of underpinning methodology as as people who had trained in, in France then went around uh, and got jobs around the world and took their methodology with them and finally if we have a little bit of time I want to talk to you a little bit about micro history so slightly different from the kind of global comparative history that we've talked about and this is where you focus down really really narrowly Um, and I'm thinking here of of something like Monteu a brilliant uh, medieval study of a little village uh, in the Pyrenees um, by Emmanuel Leroy Ladery. Um, so to start off with our taxonomies. So as Sam and I always have a bit of fun doing this, and you can apply this to your own, your own, your own studies and your own whatever period you're you're studying, whatever topic you're studying. Um, a taxonomy is it's adapted from biology and it's a way of classifying systems. So it's a bit like mind mapping so it's thinking of a historical topic in as many ways as possible and imposing an analytical structure on it so for example I'll give you a couple of examples here you might think about politics how can you divide politics up in different ways so you can think about politics in terms of ideology and ideas. Then you could go on to think about the great thinkers that shaped uh, political thinking over time from sort of the ancients and and Plato, and, and various other sort of people like that through Marx and Hegel and and all sorts of others. Um, You could also think about it in terms of structures and institutions, so parliament and representative bodies and monarchies and councils and estates and all of those, that kind of thing. You could distinguish it between high politics, the politics of the elite and the politics of of sort of politicking in, in Whitehall and Westminster in the United Kingdom. Or at Versailles if you were in, in Paris, the Reichstag in Germany, um, the Houses of Congress and the White House uh, in the United States. You could think of it in that versus low politics. So popular politics and agitation um, and, and agrarian riots. You could think of it in terms of elite versus popular. You could think of it in terms of political culture. What kind of political cultures are there? What is it that makes a political culture? You can think about democracy. You can think about the rise of um, democracy, the increased franchise that's opened up first to uh, men and then to women and how that shifts over time and you could also think about you know what are the roots of politics national politics versus local politics council elections versus national elections European elections you could think of politics in terms of uh, in terms of um, policy and the different sort of policies that different political parties have you would think of political parties themselves how could we forget political parties around the world uh, that again connect back to ideology you could think about you could think about individuals entering into politics and the things that actually make them tick whether it is about whether it is about the desire to serve to sort of be a civil civic servant or whether it is about that they are particularly interested on particular aspects of policy or justice, um, or you could think about whether they're actually much more interested in power and influence and patronage and how that plays out in different periods. So you can see there how we've taken one particular topic and we've mind mapped it. Mind mapping is probably a skill that everyone has. Drawing a, a sort of a spider diagram, something, a big circle in the middle, the topic that you're looking at and then all sorts of arrows going off in all sorts of directions. A brilliant way for planning essays uh, and, uh, and sort of, you know, spitballing all sorts of ideas. You can also think of it in terms of death. So how do we think about death in all sorts of different ways? We're in the midst of the coronavirus at the moment, um, but how, how do you approach death? You, one might take a structural approach to death, in other words, death as a, as a process. So a process that ends life, that dissolves unions, dissolves marriages, uh, and that also has economic consequences. Um, You can think of it in terms of families reconstructed by remarriage. You could also think about the psychology of death, attitudes towards dying and grief, differences between ideals and practices. You can also think about it in terms of rituals and practices surrounding dying, death, Funerals, commemoration, memory—all those sort of different uh, facets of death. Um, funerary parlors, um, you know, medicine, uh, germs, all sorts of contagion, disease, all sorts of ways that you could look at—you could look at um, death from all sorts of different perspectives. So there we are. There we have it. The first little tool uh, that we use is the taxonomy, um, and you can apply this to absolutely. Everything. The second thing that we do in histories of the unexpected is there's a big element of comparative history and global history. So it moves you away from narrow constraints of geography or periodization. So one of the things that we don't do is we don't stick in particular periods. We don't concentrate simply in the Tudor and Stuart period, uh, since I'm an early modern British historian, although many of my examples often come back to this. But we try and range as broadly as we can. And one of the things that we try to do is think about themes and wide-ranging analyses across periods and places. So, for example, how might you look at... The history of women or the history of gender the history of patriarchy across time and you could think that through um, you could think that through systems and women's rights and the ability of women to vote the kinds of roles that women played in different societies the the ideas that underpin gender uh, gender formation such as biology but also law education systems Uh, that until relatively recently around the world more or less excluded women. Um, Legal systems that saw women very much as inferior to men. Um, Just ideological systems, whether it be biblical based, whether it be legal theorists, whether it be social thinkers, whether it even be educational thinkers, often a lot of these were prejudiced against women. And so what we have is is systems, societies, worldviews set up that discriminated against women across time. And when we're thinking about that, what are what are the what are the big motors of change that led to a change in the emancipation of women? Um, I think one of the biggest things, yes, is the ability for women to vote, uh, and women to have a say. But also, I think I think scientific inventions such as the contraceptive pill, uh, so that women were able to assert control over their own bodies and to decide when they did and didn't want children, was something that was very emancipatory. So suddenly, you get a you get an ability to be able to control your biological body. Uh, so that you're not spending most of your time either pregnant or breastfeeding or looking after small children um, so we can apply that to all sorts of things uh, we can apply it to contagion um, Sam and I have just recorded a podcast on the history of soap today which will come out over the weekend hopefully and you know you can look at the the rye the you can look at soap in terms of the way in which it was used across time. Um, there's a lot of ancient evidence for the use of soap, um, medieval, early modern, and then in the nineteenth century we have, effectively, um, the discovery of germs and the spread of disease, and so soap becomes used in 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 different in different ways for purposes of hygiene and cleaning and cleansing things so what do these different histories look like what does a comparative approach add to our understanding of a particular topic how can we understand 17th century britain for example without understanding what is going on in europe so this sort of global consideration of history allows us to think about things within their particular context so this is something that i think you could you could challenge yourselves to do and brilliant books on this are a history of women uh, from ancient goddesses to christian saints jeffrey parker's global crisis
2: And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style.
1: When Klooster's revolutions in the Atlantic world, a comparative history, these will get you thinking about history across borders, Uh, sort of global history. Now, the third thing is object biography. And, you know, documents are not the only sources for historians, but we also use material objects, architecture, visual images, plays, uh, creative fictional literature. And historians also use all sorts of material goods. In fact, there has been what historians have called a material turn in history. Uh, we had a linguistic turn where everyone suddenly got very interested in language. Before that there were all sorts of other turns, but we are in the midst probably of a material turn at the moment where everyone seems to be suddenly interested in, in objects and what they what they tell us. But historians have devised or borrowed a range of ways of reading objects that they borrow from archaeology and anthropology and various other other disciplines and the question to ask yourself is how as a historian do you study an object you know we're all used to reading documents, we know how to read a letter, maybe we do, Uh, we know how to read diaries, we know how to read newspaper articles, all of those kinds of things that allow us to sort of look at when something is produced, who it was produced by, what the audience is, what the sort of um, viewpoint is. Um, We're often asked to to look at uh, bias and context and all of those kinds of things, but how do we study an object? And I want to illustrate this by thinking about the early modern glove. I have been part of a big project over the last three or four years with a number of brilliant colleagues around the world, in Australia, in, in the Netherlands, uh, in London, uh, at Plymouth, uh, and also in Lund in Sweden, uh, my wonderful friends, uh, who I've been working with, um, we've been working on uh, a new theory for looking at gloves. And a friend of mine in Australia, Sue Broomhall, and I are currently writing a book on early modern gloves. And one of the things that we started to do was to actually ask ourselves a very simple question, how do you read a glove and how do you break it apart? And I think you can see gloves, if you're looking at the this idea of object biography, what it does is it encourages you to see the glove across its life cycle so if we think about the sort of its early life before a glove is made a glove is its constituent parts so it may be if it's a leather glove it may be leather and so you need to learn about how leather is made you need to think about the way the process of leather making you need to think about the way in which skins uh, all the sort of uh, Blood and guts are sort of pulled off, they're dried, they're then tanned, are various sort of processes, and and who is involved in that. You can think about the man then then the turning of the leather into gloves. So you can think also about the trade in in leather goods. You can think about how that operates in terms of embargoes on trade, the way in which pelts from uh, the new world coming into Europe, where huge demand disrupted the structure of indigenous populations there. Um, but then you can go to a, a second stage, which is from the component parts, you can think about production. So how are, how are gloves made? How do, glovers, how do glovers make their living? How do they make their, their gloves? And all of that sort of thing. Um, and you can see the, them using leather, as one sort of process which is often done by men and then the gauntlet is passed to uh, some embroiderers to fix on some embroidery and we tend to find more and more likely to find women uh, involved in that activity. So you've got then the component parts, you've got production and then you've got the sale and consumption of gloves. So where are these gloves being, being sold? Who's buying them? Who's involved in this? How do they get from the place of production into the cities and the towns and how do they get around the country Um, and then you look at the people who are buying them and the uses they make of these of these gloves and the way here we're thinking about how much do they cost who's buying them how often how do they wear them and that takes you into a sort of another realm which is about display and meaning and rituals so you think about fashion and you think about ornamentation and you think about identity and display and opulence, um, aesthetic. And then you think about the meanings attached to gloves. Gloves given as gifts were often very symbolic. Uh, The way in which um, a woman might give somebody a glove as a particular favour, so it's connected to courtship and romance. Uh, A man striking another man in the face with a glove was actually doing something very aggressive and was challenging him to a duel and then you can think about so you've got the meaning of the gloves at that stage and then maybe there is a an extra stage of it when it passes from one person to another particularly when somebody dies you might pass on a a pair of gloves and gloves have multiple meanings then for different people who use them And if we look at the gloves of famous people, like Mary, Queen of Scots, for example, there's a very famous glove that's now at Saffron Walden Museum. And it's a glove that Mary, Queen of Scots, was supposed to have worn on the scaffold when she was executed. And unlike her other clothing, which was burned in order to stop it um, becoming relics for Marian martyrs, this glove was seized from the flames and passed with a letter of provenance down the male family line, and as a, sort of, uh, as a sort of relic. And so the glove is not simply something that is worn, but the glove that is used by somebody else has a distinct other meaning. It's a, it's a gift, it's a, it's a relic that is sort of imbued with the memory of a particular individual. And I think having a look at thinking about the inheritance and gifts and reuse of gloves, and different purposes gets us then to thinking about afterlives, archiving and presentation in museums. So many of the ways in which gloves survive in museums at the, at the sort of like the Victoria and Albert Museum, um, you know, really sort of puts a slant on the kinds of gloves that survive. I mean, some of the gloves that survived are, sim- it's simply a matter of serendipity. So they were just gifted to the museum. There was no policy to go out and collect particular kinds of gloves. And the gloves that they tend to have are ones that are particular sort of stunning gloves that tend to show a particular style, a particular maker, a particular fashion. They're about, they're about aesthetics. Now a glove like that, that ends up in a museum, a museum glove, Is probably connected to the elite and and particularly fashionable um, parts of society. When you look at archaeological gloves, so these are gloves that are dug up as part of archaeological finds, then they tend to be much more representative of ordinary people and we find traces of leather gloves but also some wool knitted gloves where the conditions survive for that. And then thinking about these archiving policies and thinking about how these objects are presented in museums, gives a really rich way of thinking about how objects have meaning to historians. And if you go out there, uh, you can see all sorts of things that historians are working on now. I mean, not just gloves, but clothing more generally, clocks, ownership, consumption, all sorts of things out there. Books, uh, the physical book, uh, book history is 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 a field of its own. So, object biographies and early modern gloves. Now, the fourth thing that I want to talk to you about is looking at historical change over time. Now, historians, as I said, are very interested in looking at patterns of continuity and change. Continuity and change. It is our bread and butter. It's what we are paid to do. It's what we're interested in. And there are two models that I want to talk to you about. The first is the great Geoffrey Elton I know. I, as a younger historian, I was very much in awe of G.R. Elton. A uh, very sort of ferocious uh, individual. Um, never met him, uh, but people I know were supervised by him. Brilliant man. Uh, he's actually the uncle of Ben Elton. Uh, if any of, you, any of you knew that, I don't know. Um, but he had a model for historical causation. And what he wanted to do was, if you take an event or a, or a happening like the Reformation or the causes of the First World War, what he wanted to do was set up some kind of model for how you were able to look at historical causation, so how something was caused, how it came about. And what he what he did was he separated out, he distinguished two types of causes that explained events in the past, i.e., those ante- antecedent events, actions, thoughts, and situations relevant to the explanation of the events to be explained. So he made a distinction between situational causes and direct causes. Now, situational causes, according to Elton, are those circumstances and conditions that make an event possible or influence a particular historical outcome. Now, these are different from direct causes, which are those uh, causes that are human factors, so the exercise of human will. In other words, the, the decisions that people make that make something happen. And the example that he often gives is the Reformation. If you think about the Reformation uh, in Europe in the 16th century. Now, if we have a think about that how did that come about? We can start by thinking about that in terms of its situational causes, i.e. that kind of co- the context, the background forces, such as the state of the late medieval church, right? something open to huge debate among historians, nationalist resentment of Italian popes, spiritual dissatisfaction with the kind of religion that was on offer, the growth of humanism. So in other words, that reform movement within the Catholic Church itself, the desire for ecclesiastical wealth to be um, allowed or encouraged a particular historical result, namely the split between the Church in Rome. But that outcome was actually brought about by direct human action. So here we are on to the direct causes. So you think here about the, the actions of Martin Luther and other reformers. The separatist moves by the German princes, Henry VIII's divorce petition, Thomas Cromwell's program for a pro- political break with Rome, um, Cromwell's own evangelism and, and reformist leaning. So in other words then, we see direct causes in history are fundamentally human chains of action and reaction which we can reconstruct from evidence. So on the one hand, you have these contextual situational forces and conditions, and then you have direct causes, which are human actions. And the only way that we can uncover that as historians is by looking in the archives for documentary material that enables us to look at motivations. Okay, so that's one of the ways of looking at historical change over time. Jeffrey Elton's historical causation. Now, the other example that I want to talk to you about is comes from Fernand Braudel, uh, a, a sort of 20th century French historian uh, who worked within the French Annals School and they were a group of socio-cultural historians uh, and they went through a series of phases. Braudel was the, was, was the sort of middle phase. And one of the big sort of revolutions in historical thinking and modelling that he came up with and that enables us to think about causation is his theory of layers of time. And he put this into practice in the Mediterranean world in the age of Philip II, which is a very long but also very brilliant book. And... This was really one of the first attempts within the French school to write a new form of total history. So you're able to take all of the sort of human actions and the situational causes and have a sort of model for how things came about. And what he did was he divided historical time into three layers. Now the first one is called the longue durée and in here you would put factors that really don't change over, over, over the centuries. So they are just the norms. So it may be things like the climate, geography, mountains, uh, the size of the Mediterranean Sea for example. These are things that you need to integrate into your understanding of a particular historical situation but that actually there's very little change, but still you need to deal with them. And secondly, he talks about the medium durée, or the sort of medium term. And into here, he talks about different sort of cycles that you have, or conjunctures. Um, And conjunctures can be synchronic, they can be unchanging, and they can be diachronic, they can be changing. So here we're thinking about things like society, uh, population. We're thinking about the economy. So all of those sort of situational factors that you that you have there in this sort of medium term that sort of change at about sort of thirty to fifty years in in cycle. And then you've got the third level, which is histoire événementielle, so the history of events. And this is really where you situate. Um, direct action from Geoffrey Elton. This is the, the history of events, this is the wars, This is the this is the sort of day-to-day politics. And what he does is by elucidating these three different layers of time, he enables you to integrate these different features in order to write a global or total history of a particular place. Now if we have a look at the contents page of the Mediterranean and the Mediterranean world in the age of Philip II, you can see very clearly how this works. Um, It's split into three parts. We've got the part one deals with the role of the environment. So this is the long durée, the long term. And in here, we've got the peninsula, the mountains, the plateau, the plains we've got the heart of the Mediterranean, the sea and the coasts, you've got the boundaries, the sort of greater Mediterranean, and then you've got features like the Mediterranean as a physical unit, so climate and history, the Mediterranean as a human unit, so communications and cities, all of these are are sort of things that don't change uh, over time. And then in part two, you've got what he calls collective destinies and general trends. So this is the medium or moyenne durée, or the conjunctures. And in here, he looks at economies, um, precious metals, money, prices, trade and transport, empires, societies, civilizations, the form of wars. And then in part three, he writes a history of events. So events, politics, and people. So 1150 to 1159, war and peace in Europe, the last six years of Turkish supremacy, 1559 to 1565, the origins of the Holy League, 1556 to 1570, Lepanto, Turco-Spanish peace treaties, 1577 to 1584, out of the limelight, the Mediterranean after 1580. So the sort of traditional history of events is dealt with there. One of the problems, though, I think that historians have found with this kind of methodology is that actually we've got these three distinct parts – and it's very difficult to actually, really integrate them. And certainly the book tries to do that, um, but it doesn't. It doesn't quite work because it's it's so difficult to try and write a genuinely sort of total history of anything. But you know, as a as an example of great history writing, I think I would recommend everyone read it. Now the final thing, number five, is slightly different to this because what we've been looking at there is this sort of huge sort of total history so looking at things from the macro and what I want to talk about now is the micro and the micro history there's been some brilliant micro history Carlo Ginzburg the cheese and the worms about the sort of world of uh, of an Italian uh, uh, sort of artisan um who who is a sort of um yeah, who's a disbeliever uh, in religious terms. Uh, Natalie Zeman Davis's The Return of Martin Guerre*, Paul Seaver's Wallington's World, or Emmanuel Leroy Laddery's brilliant book on the village Montieu. Um, and what this is, it's an attempt to write total history, but not at a macro level, but at a micro level. So it's studying something really small in infinite detail, so when we look at the book by Emmanuel Laddery, which I recommend you all read, so about this sort of Monteu village uh, between twelve ninety four and thirteen twenty four, what you have here is a group of Cathar uh, heretics. Um, so they're not the they're not they they they're seen as heretics by the Catholic Church. Um, the Church goes in. There's an Inquisition. And everyone is rounded up and interviewed uh, by the local bishop. And so what we have is all of these inquisitions with them and detailed, detailed accounts, not only of their religious beliefs, but also of every single aspect of this small Pyrenean village. We can know about the structure and hierarchies. We can think about the families. We can think about how they got their food, how they farmed, how they thought about time and distance, how they thought about law, what their attitudes to death, sex, children, animals, all sorts of things were, their concept of time, very different from our own time, because we have these wonderful resources, these Inquisition documents that survive, that allow us to look at the incidental lives of these ordinary villagers so microhistory can be a wonderful way of getting into that now all of these different methodologies whether it be taxonomy whether it be comparative history whether it be object biography whether it be these different models of causation or whether it be microhistory for me all of these just different methodologies that i've i've used uh, uh, across my uh, historical career are, are feed into what we do with histories of the unexpected. and I think they they're things that you could all uh, have a think about. It would it would be curriculum enrichment. it would allow you to go out and think about how historians put history together in different ways. What are the building blocks of history? How do we work? Well, that's been a very nice way to spend 45 minutes in your company. so thank you all for listening. You can follow. Uh, the Twitter handle of the podcast, at UnexpectedPod. You can follow me on at James Daybell. You can follow Sam on at Dr. Sam Willis. And you can follow everything that we do on our website, um, which is historiesoftheunexpected.com. Check out the other episodes in the podcast. There are, oh, probably 130-odd episodes for you now, which hopefully, while you are all inside and, you know unable to get out and about and visit places. Uh, Hopefully this will give you some kind of enjoyment over the next few weeks. Be well everyone, stay safe and hopefully hear from you soon. Bye!